It's Friday 20th of October and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, is China dumping its dollars and are we in an AI stock market bubble? But first, I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi there, Neil. Hi there, David. Let's start with the bond market. We've talked about macro risks with Treasury yields at 4% and at 4.5% and at 4.8%. And now we've got the 10-year at 5%. But according to a lot of recent data, US industry and households are still in pretty good shape. Talk about what's driving the bond market and, and talk about the impact of all of this. Yes, you're right. I think part of the reason we've had another leg up in yields over the past week has been the strength of the incoming data from the US in particular, not the case from Europe, incidentally, as a string of weak data from, from Europe. But in the case of the US, retail sales were strong, manufacturing data has been a bit stronger, jobless claims over the past week edged down to so the labour markets looking in pretty good shape. So I think that's one reason why we've had another leg up in yields. But of of course, the other uh, thing that everyone is now talking about is what's going on with the term premium. Of course, this is all parts of the bond yield that can't be explained by the expected path of short-term interest rates. So it's a bit of a black box. I think part of it is about concern over the trajectory of fiscal policy in the US. Part of it might be about inflation uncertainty. We've written a, a big piece looking at trying to unpack the, the US term premium and what's going on there. And I think we've just seen more of the same really over the past past week or so, these concerns escalating. So what does that mean in terms of Fed calculus expectations for another hike in November seem to have shrunk to to nothing? And this is just more tightening on top of that. Our financial conditions indices show that the availability of credit is, is as tight as it's been since the global financial crisis. Translate all of this into the, the macro outlook. Well, we've had a, a, a slew of uh, speeches from Fed officials in particular. Jerome Powell was perhaps the most interesting one on Thursday um, at the Economic Club of New York. And really, I think, dampening down any expectations of, of additional rate hikes coming in November, which has been our view for a while. And that's really because, as you say, this sell-off in the bond market has contributed to a substantial tightening of financial conditions. I think one of the things that's perhaps spooking central bankers now is a slight sense that they're losing control of this process. If you look at where the sell-off in bonds has happened over the past week or so, it's really come at the long end of the curve. And like, like we were saying, it's about the kind of term premium. That's all the stuff that the central bank can't really control. What it can control is the path of short-term rates, what's happening at the short end of the curve in particular, but also the expectations for the path of short-term rates over the the next uh, five, 10 years. Now, it can do something about that, but that's not what's driving this sell-off on the bond market. So there's a slight concern among central bankers that are just starting to lose control of the process, perhaps, and it's starting to run away from them. Uh, now, what it means for the real economy is that this tightening of financial conditions is just going to add to the economic headwinds uh, that, that are coming down the track. If you look at the US, for example, mortgage rates now approaching 8% that's the highest since the summer of 2000. We actually had some data from the US housing market over the past week or so. Starts Housing starts incredibly weak. So we're already seeing this translate into parts of the, the economy that are most rate sensitive. For now, the US consumer is not cracking and the US labor market is, as I said, seemingly holding up pretty well. But if we get a continued tightening of financial conditions, I suspect it's a matter of time before we start to see see cracks appear. Yeah, let's move away from the US, but stay on that theme because yields have been rising in the UK and Europe as well. ECB meeting coming this Thursday. Now, these economies, I think, as you mentioned, they're, they're not in as good shape as the US. 
Is there a different calculation there in terms of what higher borrowing costs mean? Yes, you're right. Economies in Europe looking much weaker than in the US. Business service, for example, in the Eurozone consistent with a 0.2.3% fall in GDP in Q3. As we're speaking on Friday morning, we've just had a slew of data from the UK, in particular the retail sales numbers look pretty grim, suggests that consumer spending contracted in, in the third quarter in the UK. So the economic landscape in Europe and in the UK looks a lot more troubling. And of course, the other big thing that's happened over the past week has been another leg up in oil prices on the back of what's happening in, in, in the Middle East. And Europe, of course, is a large energy importer whereas the US is a, a net energy exporter. So that adds even more headwinds to, 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 to the European economy. Um, now, as for the ECB, I think they're done tightening, but the message they will send to the market at the Governing Council meeting over the coming week will be a cautious one, I think. They're not going to, certainly not going to declare victory over inflation uh, at the moment. But the economic clouds are really gathering over Europe. And I think you know, if, if the economy is not already in recession, European economy is heading into recession over the, the coming months. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised as well if Christine Lagarde gets a question uh, after the Thursday meeting about what's going on in the Middle East and the impact on, on policy. Uh, you mentioned that Jerome Powell speech in New York uh, on Thursday. Uh, I just want to read a quote from that. Uh, he said, geopolitical tensions are highly elevated and pose important risks to global economic activity. Our institutional role at the Federal Reserve is to monitor these developments for their economic implications, which remain highly uncertain. Unpack all that for us. Would you got central banks who are trying to get inflation under control in the middle of all of this post-pandemic fog? Now you have this new layer of geopolitical uncertainty. How do they factor in something as unknowable as the course of events in the Middle East into the policymaking process? Yes, you're right. Caution clear the watchword from Powell. Lots of stressing of how uncertain uh, the effects of all of this are. I think that the, the key channel for, through which this affects the US economy, but also the European economy, is what's happening to commodity prices. Now, at the moment, we've got oil kind of pushing the mid 90s. I don't think that really changes the policy calculus. It makes central banks' jobs slightly harder because the falls in inflation that we, we're going to see over the coming months are going to be slower, smaller, as a result of the rise in oil prices. I don't think it will necessarily stop inflation falling back because any increase in energy inflation is likely to be offset by a drop in food inflation that's coming down the track. But it certainly makes central banks' jobs harder. So the key transmission mechanism is through commodity prices and oil prices. It probably doesn't change the policy calculus at this stage, given that they're mostly done hiking and we're not thinking about cuts anytime soon. But if we were to get oil, say, going to $125 a barrel because there's a conflict between Israel and Iran, and labor markets are still, you know, in a, in a month's time, they're still looking surprisingly robust and resilient, particularly in the US, I think that would put central banks in a really tough position. So it doesn't change the calculus at the moment, but keep an eye on what's happening in commodity markets. And if we've got a big surge in oil prices to, like I say, kind of $120, $130 a barrel because of a, a, a substantial escalation in the conflict, then I think that would put central banks in a bind and, and would have them thinking again about whether they need to tighten. Normally what happens is that central banks tend to look through these big moves in, in oil prices because there's not much they can do about controlling food and energy inflation. They tend to focus more on core inflation and of course, higher oil prices generally is a negative for economic growth, particularly in 
in Europe. But if labour markets are tight and there's a concern about a feedback loop into inflation expectations and, and wage wage claims and wage bargaining, then I think that might start to alter the the, the, the policy calculus. Let's take a bit of a step back because it's been a year since we published this in-depth report about global fracturing or fragmentation, I think the IMF calls it. At its heart is this view that geopolitics is basically back as a driver of economies and markets. In other words, investors need to get wise to the idea that there's a much more complex world of things to factor in on top of things like inflation, central bank reaction functions, earnings expectations, etc. Now, at the risk of adding to the large and, and growing pile of hot takes that, that we've seen coming out of events of the last fortnight, how do you view what's been going on through a lens of, of fracturing? Well, I think one of the interesting points is that clearly tensions in the Middle East predates everything that's been happening with the, the US and China over the past three, four, five years. This is an issue that is decades old. One of the interesting things is that as the current tension has flared in the Middle East, one of the questions that, that's being asked is, what does this all mean for China's role in the, the region? Now, that is a question just that just simply would not have been asked three or four years ago, for example. You know, if if there was to be a conflict between Israel and Iran, for example, how, how does China respond? That's just simply not a question that would have been asked a couple of years ago. So it, it go, I think this is another way in which fracturing has started to manifest itself that it's another thing for investors to have to kind of grapple with whether they're thinking about how to, to prize risks that are that are, that are emanating from from these events. One of the points I think that's worth stressing is that when it comes to fracturing, China has been trying to position itself as a kind of friend of everyone in the Middle East, uh, the, the kind of honest brokers, obviously brokered at the rapprochement between Saudi and Iran. It was influential in pushing Saudi uh, as a member of the joining the BRICS. And it's more generally been trying to build alliances um, across the Middle East. Doing so will become increasingly difficult, I think, if this conflict escalates, because it will necessarily force China to take sides in the conflict and potentially push it into quite uncomfortable positions, particularly if Iran gets pulled into this. Um, so clearly, fracturing is not a driver of what's happening between Israel and, and Hamas right now. But the fact that the global economy and the US-China relationship has kind of fractured means that the fallout will be even more complicated. Um, I think I'd make two other points as it relates to the kind of mainstream analysis of fracturing or fragmentation right now. One is that um, it tends to get presented as a kind of static thing. And the, the global economy has fractured. Whereas in practice, actually, this is a process that's evolving. Um, you know, that, that will be shaped in part by geo, geopolitical events, as, uh, as I've just mentioned, but also domestic political events. So for example, if Trump was to be re-elected in the US next year, I suspect the nature of the form of fracturing would change. We'd shift back to the kind of more transactional approach to, to trade policy that we saw between 2016 and 2020, fracturing wouldn't go away. It would just take a slightly different form. The other point I think I would stress, which is perhaps slightly less pessimistic, uh, is that a lot of the estimates of what this means in terms of economic losses and economic damage look a bit excessive to me. So if you look at the IMF's estimates, they think that the, the path of global GDP could be about 7% lower over the medium term as a result of fracturing. That's the equivalent of removing France and Germany from the global economy right now. Now, our estimates are actually that the, the economic damage will be substantially lower. 
because you've got to understand what's driving this. It's geopolitics that's driving the, the fracturing. And there's no good geopolitical reason to unpick global supply chains to the extent where you will cause the damage on the scale that the IMF, for example, has speculated and that, that some now fear. Instead, it will be much more targeted unraveling of supply chains, much more targeted measures on things like technology, some financial flows, perhaps some pharmaceutical, you know, high-tech, high-end products. It's not going to be the kind of mass unraveling of, of globalization. And so I think some of the estimates of the economic costs and damage from fracturing that have been put around are probably a bit excessive. That was Neil Shearing on geopolitical upheaval and what that says about global fracturing. His weekly note is going to be going into a lot more detail on this, and I'll post that on the podcast page as soon as it's published. Our Europe team will be giving their take on Thursday's ECB meeting. I'll post their preview of the decision on the page as well. Uh, We're also continuing to track the macro market implications of the tragic events in the Middle East. I'll add some recent analysis to the page, including what this could all mean for oil prices. Coming up, we'll be hearing about AI hype and market bubbles, But first, talk of China dumping the dollar has been a perennial of financial markets. One strand of this speculation has been around its holdings of treasury securities. And there's been new excitement around this story in recent days following the latest tick data from the US Treasury Department, which suggests that China is a net seller. So is China dumping its dollars? I spoke to Mark Williams, Chief Asia Economist, about what's happening with Chinese FX reserve management and what we can and can't learn from the official data. I started by asking you if there's anything to the speculation. China is certainly not dumping dollars. There is some evidence that it may have been selling some of its dollar assets recently. So this week we got the tick data from the US, the Treasury International Capital data. That showed that in terms of its long-term US dollar assets, it sold about 21 billion of those in August, most of that was was selling long-term treasuries, about 15 billion worth of it. But it's really important to remember whenever these data hit the headlines that they're a very partial view of China's overall assets. I mean, one thing is people put too much weight just on the on the treasury numbers. And a big part of the story over the past couple of years has been that China's rotated out of treasuries and into agencies. Those two moves are broadly offset. So that tells you that China hasn't been net-net selling a lot overall over the past couple of years. Recently, of course, these are the data for August that we're looking at now. August was a period when the renminbi came into uh, pressure. So it's plausible that that um, China may have uh, intervened and, and used some of its official foreign exchange reserves to do it. But what might also have happened is that China was shifting out of long-term securities into shorter duration or into cash to give itself a bit of a war chest if it needed to uh, intervene. And again, the data that everybody is looking at are just telling us about the move out of long-term securities, not telling us about the overall um, shift in China's dollar asset position. Perhaps the bigger thing, though, in all this is that we're only looking here at a very at a portion of China's overall foreign exchange reserves. So the best estimates are that China has about 1.8 trillion US dollars in various assets around the world. The um, assets that we can identify in the tick data, they amount to about 1.4 trillion. That's treasuries, agency bonds, corporate bonds, equities. Uh, so there's at least 400 billion of China's dollar assets that are not being counted here. And then on top of that, you've got the unofficial assets, foreign exchange assets that are on the balance sheets of China's state banks. 
And we know a lot less about exactly what China is doing with, with those assets. What we do know is that consistently over the past few years, China seems to have been keeping a very stable proportion of its assets overall in dollars. Its actions look very much like those of a reserve manager that is targeting a, a consistent proportion of its assets being in, in dollars. Nothing has happened recently that should really, I think, change that view. And it's, it's also worth mentioning that, of course, the numbers that we're talking about here, they, by some, in some contexts, they're really big. So we're talking about 21 billion US dollars of sales of long-term securities in August. But if it's right that China has about 1.8 trillion of, of the US dollar assets, then you know, that's just over 1% of the total. So by no means is this China dumping the dollar at all. It's, it, it, if it's happening, it's the usual sort of foreign exchange management. Yeah, so I, I guess the key point is just what we're seeing here is just a glimpse of, of China's reserves. There's much more reserve management we're not seeing, be it through these, these state actors or, or hiding in, in official data of other securities holders. This all seems like a new variant of a very old story. You can go back a couple of decades and find similar stories about China uh, ditching dollars. I guess what's new is we're coming off the back of this once in a generation rise in inflation and the monetary response from the Fed and, and bond markets are in a febrile state. So, so data like the, the, these tick numbers are going to make an impact. But you touched on it, but talk a bit more about what this all means in the context of the renminbi, rising US yields, pressuring currencies across Asia. I know the Asia team are going to be talking about this in, in one of our drop-ins in the coming week or two. Is there a sense that the FX reserve numbers or that the, the, the data reflect Beijing's desire to, to support the currency? Well, there's no doubt that the People's Bank has been uh, actively intervening to support the currency recently. It's been pretty stable at about 7.3 since around the middle of uh, August. Now, typically, this intervention doesn't really show up in China's official foreign exchange numbers. They've been extremely stable for the past few years. So the People's Bank intervenes in other ways. One of them is, is by setting the fix, the currency each day leaning against the market like that. And the other is, is using the balance sheets of the commercial banks. So it's, it's uh, an active intervener, but also a hidden intervener, which makes it quite hard to, to track in, in, in real time. What we do know, of course, is that it has an awful lot of assets to deploy if it wants to. So you know, we get sometimes people questioning whether it can hold the line. If it wants to hold the line, it, it, it certainly can. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, that goes back to your point about how we're only seeing a, you know, a small portion of the reserves that China, China can mobilize in situations like these. Talk a bit more about the, the, the state administration foreign exchange and how it, how it allocates these reserves. It's aptly named SAFE because its mantra when it comes to managing these reserves is, is always literally safety and then liquidity and then profitability and strictly in that order. As long as China's got these giant reserves, it needs somewhere to park them, right? And this preference for treasuries and, and for dollar assets kind of fits that SAFE mantra of, of safety and liquidity and profitability. But it also reflects the fact that the dollar asset market really is the only game in town, right? Yeah. When you've got $3 trillion to deploy, you don't have that many places that you can that you can stick it. And one of the things that's really striking, if you look at SAFE's management of the FX reserves over a period of, of years, is how consistent it has been. So we get these stories coming back again and again, talking about China diversifying away from the dollar. But when we look at the at the data, I mean, and, and SAFE has um, started over the past few years to release data 
with a lag, but it does release data now on the breakdown of its foreign exchange reserves. It's you know it's it, it's incredibly stable. It's set fifty nine percent consistently of reserves are in in dollars. So it doesn't seem to be rethinking its strategy. And a big reason for that is, as you say, that there aren't that many options. Where do you go if you've got you know the, this amount of money to deploy? One of the perhaps new stories over the past couple of years is this idea that there are now geopolitical reasons to make China not want to hold dollar assets, particularly after the sanctions that the US put on on Russian banks. So maybe uh, SAFE needs to think about how to sanction-proof the reserves. But again, there's, there's, there's no real way to do that because, of course, it wasn't just the US that put those sanctions on Russian banks. They happened simultaneously with sanctions from the Europeans, from the Brits, from the Japanese. And these countries, all allies of, of the US, issue the vast majority, nearly all of the world's safe assets, the sorts of things that foreign exchange reserve managers want to hold. So there really are no good alternatives. And so the safe really will, you know, has to stick with, with dollars. It doesn't have any options. That was Mark Williams on China's dollar dilemma. Finally this week, our Spotlight 2023 report was all about AI's economic implications, but also what this technology means for markets. A big theme of 2023 has been the extraordinary run-up in equities in the US that are linked to the AI story. And that's prompted fears of a bubble. Even as the broader markets come off in recent weeks, there's this handful of stocks that have done so much to drive the S&P 500 higher this year, and they're continuing to outperform by a lot. I spoke to Bradley Saunders about how AI hype is feeding market speculation. Brad's the co-author of the final part of our AI report, all about the technology's impact on bonds and stocks. And I began by asking if we are indeed seeing a bubble. Yeah, I think we are in a bubble. If we look at the, the narrowness of the rally in the stock market so far this year, at a time when you know we've had sort of slow economic growth, we've had higher interest rates, it's really only concentrated amongst a handful of large firms. In our report specifically, we looked at the share of the constituents in the S&P 500, which have outperformed the overall index this year. And it's only about a quarter, which is the lowest it's been in any calendar year, going back to, well, the beginning of the dot-com bubble in about 1926-1997. So that was sort of one thing that influenced our thinking. Another was we look at a famous economist called Robert Schiller created the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, or Schiller's CAPE ratio, which is a really good measure of looking at valuations in the stock market and sort of if they're above their long-run average or not. And it's been a really good metric looking back at previous bubbles. It worked very well for the dot-com bubble and it worked well for the housing bubble in 2008 as well. And if we look at where it is currently, it's it's quite a bit higher already than it was at the start of the dot-com bubble, near to where it was just for the housing bubble burst, and far above its long-run average. So that's definitely another factor that's influenced our forecasts for a bubble. I think it's just in general, if you look at the extent of the euphoria among investors, as I said, particularly at a time where you have higher interest rates, slow economic growth in most of the major economies, it, it's really hard to argue that this isn't the start of something like a speculative bubble. It really does look as if investors are looking to to crystallize the, the potential gains of AI upfront, gains which in reality would only likely to be realized once the technology begins to diffuse slowly throughout the economy over the next few years. Yeah, let's talk about that question of crystallizing gains up front because, you know, as with all bubbles, timing is everything. It's it's not so much that you're in the bubble as knowing when to get out of it. Based on your analysis, how long can this go on for? What do you expect? 
Yeah, I think it's something that could certainly take a few years to play out. I mean, it's quite hard to put your finger on exactly when bubbles begin. It's quite arbitrary. But if you look back throughout history, they have lasted a while. I mean, the dot-com bubble lasted at least five years, even when people were quite aware of it. I mean, the Fed chairman at the time, Alan Greenspan, commented on irrational exuberance in the stock market about five years before the bubble even burst. So it was definitely not a secret by that point. And I think we're viewing this very much in the same way here, where although the bubble could deflate and inflate over the next couple of years, depending on, you know, shifts in monetary policy stance, the fact that we are expecting slower growth in the next few months could potentially see some air taken out of the bubble in the next few months as investors' priorities shift away towards the macroeconomic outlook. We do think this is something that could play out over quite a few years, particularly given that we are really only starting to realise now the capabilities of the technology as it's materialising in sort of this, this tangible evidence in the form of GPT models and things like that. Let, let's stay on that because a Ben Graham type value investor would be would be wary of the AI high, wouldn't he? And Warren Buffett certainly does seem to be. But the whole point of our analysis at the heart of, of this, this spotlight report that we published is this idea that AI is a general purpose technology. In other words, like electrification, here we have something that has economy-wide effects. So what are the implications of that for, for the equities market? Given what you've just said about how concentrated the, the rally has been this year around the, the AI story. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think that, of course, there are going to be industries, at least in the short term, which will benefit more than others. We take the IT sector, for instance, which has you know been the sector where this technology has risen from, and it's the providers of the technology. It wouldn't be unreasonable to assume the IT sector may continue to outperform in the next couple of years. If you look at sort of the adoption of the computer and things like that, it was the tech firms were at the forefront of the technology and they have since continued to be and it's led to, you know, these these mega cap stocks and the Magnificent Seven. And it's really sort of a continuation of that given that these are the only firms really capable of developing these large language models, both because of the, the enormous costs involved in, in creating the neural networks they, they run on and also the large data sets required to train them. And there would obviously, when AI is then rolled out and adopted and diffuses throughout the, the economy, there are industries that stand to benefit directly first. You know, you think if you think of perhaps industries where tasks are quite repetitive and they can be automated quite quickly, we could see AI utilized sooner. Likewise, industries where large data sets are used. So you look at airlines or railroads, which, you know, look to try to optimize routes using large sets of data, they could certainly benefit from AI. But going back to your question, because we do view AI as a general purpose technology, we do think that all industries should benefit, even those which perhaps don't have as much of a direct application of AI in the first place. So if we take construction, for example, which is quite hard to automate because it requires sort of fine motor skills and things that even modern robotics aren't really capable of replicating. We still expect these industries to benefit from the adoption of AI, both through the impact on the boost to the potential rate of real economic growth, which we're forecasting because of gains in productivity, but also, I suppose, this boost to industries which construction is reliant upon. So, as I said earlier, the boost to airlines, similarly a boost to logistics. So, if logistics companies are able to utilize AI to get materials to construction sites sooner, then the construction firms indirectly benefit from AI's application. So, I think that's sort of a demonstration of how we view AI and its sort of benefits as a diffuser at the economy. The way in which it sort of materializes in all industries is enough to warrant the term general purpose technology, I think. And and justify higher valuations for... Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's one reason we're, we're quite bullish on the stock market over the, over the next few years. You know, it has been so far 
a, a very US story, hasn't it? I mean, much like the dot-com bubble before it, where you had maybe a handful of companies outside the US that rode the dot-com wave and quite successfully and are still around today. But overwhelmingly, what we've seen in markets this year in terms of AI hype, it's all been about you know NVIDIA and Microsoft and, and Google and, and these US listed companies. Even Arm, which is obviously a UK company with AI potential, has chosen to go and list in the US. Do you see more global opportunities for investors as as the technology develops? Possibly. I think, as I said previously, it's these large tech firms which are the, really the ones capable at the minute of producing large language models, and it looks set to remain that way at least you know for the next couple of years. In in our report, we looked at sort of the four largest exchange traded funds which track AI stocks, and about two thirds of the constituents of those funds are listed on U.S. indices. It's clear the U.S. is very well placed at the moment. If you compare to other large equity markets, so Europe, for instance, which has, with the exception of a couple of large semiconductor and, and hardware producing firms, really no leaders in the AI field whatsoever, particularly if you contrast that with the dot-com bubble where there were firms like Ericsson and Nokia, which were helping European equities to keep pace with US equities at times. The gains perhaps could come elsewhere. So if we look over to Asia instead, China has, has been a real forerunner in AI so far in terms of innovation. We look at Korea, Taiwan, those sorts of economies which have great AI prospects in terms of semiconductor production and also large weighting of the IT sector in their stock indices. But I think the reason we're viewing this mostly as, as quite US-centric is that when we've created our AI economic impact index, it was not that the US only did well in innovation, it was also it did well in diffusion and adaptation. I think that is really where it stands out in particular. It's not just how it's leading at the moment, it's that it's set up very well to continue to lead over the next few years. Whereas if you take countries like China, for instance, which may struggle more to diffuse the technology, it may be that the gains to the stock market has sort of centered in solely the tech sector and it struggles to sort of diffuse and pass into the other sectors of the stock market. Let's let's go back to this question of valuations because we've just published this big report about our star, about equilibrium real interest rates. So we've had to wait to publish the spotlight report to go out because so much of, of what we talk about in terms of productivity benefits from AI feed into our view of, of where interest rates will settle over the coming decade. But one of the conclusions that this report makes is that risk-free rates are, are going to, to go higher in the coming decade. Wouldn't that imply all things being equal, uh, you have higher risk-free rates, higher treasury yields, uh, real and nominal. Wouldn't that imply lower risky asset prices for things like you know, AI stocks? Well, I suppose all else equal, yes. As you said, higher risk-free rates would alone put downward pressure on valuations. It raises the, the risk-free component of investors' required returns from equity. But of course, that's just theory in real life. It, it, it isn't all a case of all else equal. In, and in the case of AI, we think that because we're expecting faster growth in corporate earnings as the potential rate of economic growth increases and also the share of income flowing to companies' earnings increases, we think that's one thing which would offset the impact on value, the downward impact on valuations of these higher risk-free rates. Not only that, we're also expecting rising price to earnings multiples, which we've already seen happen in, in some of the, the, the leading AI firms at the moment. We think that sort of both of those factors together are more than enough to offset this downward pressure on valuations, um, which is why we're taking a fairly bullish view on the S&P 500 from here. So we have penciled in about a fall of about 2.5% by the end of this year from where it currently sits. We're basing that on 
economic growth continuing to slow and investors increasingly pricing in higher interest rates if, as they have done in recent weeks with this, this large sell-off in bonds. But then beyond that, as sort of major central banks shift towards looser monetary policy and economic growth begins to pick up again next year, we're expecting enthusiasm around the tech to really be the main driving force in stock market. So we have the S&P 500 rising to 5,500 by the end of next year, which is about 20% higher from where it will be at the end of this year. And then again, 6,500 the year after that, which would be another 20% rise from there at a current level of about 4,400 at the time of recording this. That was Brad Saunders on the market implications of AI hype. That was the last in a short series of interviews with some of the authors of our work on AI, including the economists who built and analysed our AI Economic Impact Index, which Brad mentioned. You can find all the others on the podcast page of our website, capitaleconomics.com forward slash podcast, where you can also subscribe to listen to upcoming episodes of The Weekly Briefing. The AI Economic Impact Index and all its underlying data is available as part of our CE Advanced offering. That's our premium platform. It provides access to all our data and insight and much more besides. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.